Hey, Kev, let's let's follow this trail over here. This looks like there might be something waiting down there. All right. Hey, wait a minute. Do you hear that? Yeah, I thought it was just me. What the heck is that? I don't know what that is. Whoa, do you smell that, too? That's unbelievable. Hey, look. What the? Hey, look, those, those branches are moving over there. What the heck is that? Holy cow, is that what I think it is? Look at that thing. It, oh my god. It's a freaking Sasquatch. Welcome to the Bigfoot Terror in the Woods Sightings and Encounters podcast. I am your host, W.J. Sheehan, author of the series of books, Bigfoot Terror in the Woods Sightings and Encounters, 10 volumes to date. And by the way, volume 10 is now available in audio format. So we've got 10 books paperback, ebook, and Kindle on Amazon, and we've got 10 books at Audible, iTunes, and Amazon as well. So go out there and buy a thousand copies. (laughs) (laughs) And now, may I introduce you to my brother and co-host, KJ Sheehan. Kev, how are you? I'm doing great, Bill. How about you? Pretty good. You know, and uh, just in reference to the books... Somebody sent me a little email uh, that, when will your paperbacks be available? (laughs) And I said to myself, man, this person must be hitting the shine in the shed. (laughs) Because because all of these books have been out for years uh, on Amazon. All you got to do is type in the title, Bigfoot Terror in the Woods, Sightings and Encounters, and you scroll through. They don't necessarily have them all in order. You got to kind of go through volume one, volume two, whatever. And the Audible books, of course, you could get directly through Audible, which is a division of Amazon. And most of them are available on the Amazon site as well. Now, my friend Philip the other night told me that volume 10 was not there. But I guess there's a lag time between its approval and getting on the Amazon site, but it was on the Audible site, and he downloaded it. So Yeah, and like, like you're hinting at, Bill, they are a little hard to find sometimes. Like like anything else on Amazon, you know, when you type in that you want a 16-ounce uh, Yeti mug blue, uh, sometimes that comes right up. Sometimes you got to scroll through 25 other things before you find it. Yeah, I don't know why that is, because it asks you to search, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure part of it is um, um, maybe there's paying for it to pop up sooner, you know, like a placement, advertisement. And you see that on Amazon where it says sponsored, you know, when the first thing that comes up is usually sponsored. Somebody paid for it to come up first in the search. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then also... uh, I, I don't know. However, their algorithm works related to Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's that way, right? I mean, yeah. but but just be patient, folks. Hunt around; you will find them. Um, they are all there, like my brother said. Yeah, yeah, and they're good. You know, uh, 
for those of you who are new to the podcast, new to me, new to my brother, uh, the books I have put out are each chapter or segment is an encounter. Uh, I don't try to overly embellish anything. Uh, I try to be as factual as I can. In fact, I was doing an interview with a fantastic encounter in Georgia uh, with a fella the other night, and I'm going to get back to him. A lot of these interviews are two sessions, one session, two sessions, sometimes three sessions. And, uh, you know, I told him, he said to me, don't you record these things? And I said, no. I take uh, pretty much like a shorthand set of notes, and uh, then I go back in and uh, I write them out. Uh, So I said to him, it's not my intention to get every dot and dash Uh, in the right place when I'm doing these things. What I'm trying to do is just convey overall what had happened and some of the circumstances surrounding it. And then I share them with you uh, in these books, as I will do today with uh, the the account that I'll bring to the table. So uh, that's the way it is. You know, I, I think I told you once before, Kev, that I, I really don't read uh many of the uh, uh, praises or criticisms, you know, in regards to uh, people talking about, you know, a rating. But one day uh, a woman said, these books sound like they're all written by the same person. And I just sat there shaking my head and I said, yeah, they're written by the same person. It's me. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, it's easy to criticize, isn't it, Kev, when you you yourself have done nothing? Well, and I don't, you know, I, I just think, you know, you, there's views out there, and we, we like them all. You know, um, constructive feedback is good. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, and great feedback is even better because it yeah. keeps us going, you know, and, and we like to have the positive reinforcement. But, you know, people have given us constructive feedback on the podcast over time, and we've taken it, and we've made modifications to how we do it. So, yeah, but yep. you know, there's also you can't please everybody, and each episode, like each one of your stories, is different. It goes a different way. Like we didn't know when we just got started that we were going to be talking about the books, right? Like we're not scripted, folks. Bill, yep. my brother, is 600 miles away from me, and we're on a Skype call, and he doesn't know what I'm going to talk about, and I don't know what he's going to talk about. So that's part of the uh, part of the fun and part of the challenge. So that's right. That's All right. right, Bill. Well, first off, before we get into cryptids, into news, and other oddities, I am just back from a Mothman research trip. Yes, sir. How was that? It was super cool. (laughs) So, folks, I went up to Point Pleasant, West Virginia, where that first big Mothman sighting was in and around Point Pleasant, and where the Silver Bridge fell into the Ohio River, and many people were killed in that, by the way, when that bridge fell down, and the the story from up there in Point Pleasant is that Mothman appeared kind of as an omen of the bridge's collapse. So, you know, the sightings were about a week before, and then he was actually seen on the bridge uh, shortly before 
the bridge collapsed. And the town is a super cool little town right up on the Ohio border, so right up on the banks of the Ohio River. And they have an awesome Mothman Museum there. Yeah, yeah. Really good. I, I mean, I knew there was a museum, but each one of these museums I go to, folks, they are really good. They're better. These cryptid museums are better than the typical museum not related to cryptids that I go in. Yeah, it's like the people are very diligent about the appearance and the presentation of it's important to them. You can tell great, it's important great to them. Great description. Diligent, Bill. So I'll describe it to you a little bit, folks, and I'll put some pictures up on our website, uh, BigfootTerraInTheWoods.com, under episodes, and this will be under episode 221. And we'll put up a couple of pictures. But outside of the museum, right in downtown Point Pleasant, there is this stainless steel sculpture of Mothman. You know, mm -hmm. some artisan put it together and it's up on a pedestal and it's got red eyes and it's stainless steel. It's spectacular. So uh -huh. really, really good. And that is in the middle of a street that's next to the side of the Mothman Museum. And when you look up into the second story windows of the Mothman Museum, there's a man in black looking out the window. <laughs> at you by the museum. Uh -huh. Super cool. So, yeah, yeah, they got the man in black up there. And then when you go into the museum, of course, they have a gift shop and stuff like that with some pretty cool stuff, by the way. Um, and then you go, you pay admission to get back into the museum, not the gift shop. And by the way, it's very reasonable. It was like $4.99 to go in. Okay. And, you know, they got you. Like, some of the places I've been to are like $15 because they know you came all the way there. You're not going to not go in the museum. Right? Right, right. So I applaud these folks because it's five bucks basically to get in. And it's pretty darn big. They have like all kinds of pictures and every single news article from around the globe of anything covering Mothman. And then they have a a little theater um, that you go and sit down and there's a rolling film about 15 minutes long where they're interviewing all of the different people that originally saw Mothman up there in West Virginia. Yeah. So yeah. you sit down and you see the interviews. And then, of course, there's quilts people have made of Mothman that are pretty spectacular and costumes and you know, I mean, you name it, it's there. And I I told the guy, you know, running it, I said, this place is fantastic. You're really good. Mm -hmm. Hey, Kev, how many people, if you know, uh, actually witnessed or said, were said to have witnessed the Mothman on the bridge? I don't know on the bridge how many, but there were, like in the interviews, probably a dozen to 15 people that were interviewed. Uh huh. That saw him back then. And a lot of these people were prior to the actual uh, bridge collapse. Yeah, during the first couple of weeks. Yeah. You know, yeah. Like the first ones, if you remember, were um, down south of Point Pleasant in a town, I think it's called Clendenin, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. Mm -hmm. And that's where the three grave diggers. They were out digging a grave in the graveyard in Clendenin, and they saw this thing fly down right over their heads and look at them and keep flying on out of the graveyard. 
But can, I can't even imagine that happening. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I sent you a picture, Bill, when we got there. It was a full moon. Yeah. I mean, you can't script this stuff, folks. So you know it's a creepy place. You know Mothman's creepy. Maybe a little bit of demonic stuff going on. And and right over the hill, looking towards Clendenin, is this full moon with the wispy clouds across it coming up over the hillside. I was like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it gets your mind going. This is going to be good. <laughs> So if you so if you get a chance though, go up there um, to Point Pleasant, beautiful museum, cool little town. They got a little Mexican restaurant that actually has a Mothman burrito on the menu, of course. <laughs> and what was really interesting, Bill, was to me was the site of the bridge collapse. So there's a little plaque there, um, um, in a little like you know probably twenty by twenty park with a pretty tree, a memorial to all of the people that died when the bridge collapsed. And what's really interesting is the br of course the bridge isn't there anymore, but there's not a new bridge there either. Hmm. That shocked me. Now, how did they conquer getting across the river? Obviously, they needed a bridge. What did they do? Well, they built another bridge, but it's about a mile away. Wow, so they just uh, steered clear of the site and everything. It's Almost pretty like interesting. It's like when you look from the park toward the riverbank, there's a little like uh, decorative wall there, and there's a painting of the bridge mm -hmm. where the bridge used to be. And then you walk over there and you look across the river itself, and yeah, there's no bridge. There's a railroad bridge that's next to it, um, and that railroad bridge was there when this bridge fell. Now, if you know, did they pull all of the cars and remains out of the river? Was everybody uh, salvaged, so to speak? I would imagine, but I don't really know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I don't really know. What a so, sad affair. I mean, you oh, can't... Terrible. You, you know, terrible. Terrible, terrible thing, but uh, very bizarre. And then, so in this Point Pleasant community, are there still... Active sightings of the Mothman, or did that cease with the bridge collapse? They, you know, they haven't seen them since then, um, you know, in any significant way. And, of course, there have been a lot of Mothman sightings, which I covered on this podcast up in Chicago, which mm -hmm. are, you know, pretty interesting. But they don't really refer to those much in the museum and in and around Point Pleasant. So maybe it's something else. I'll tell you one funny thing, a little bit funny, a little bit creepy. You know, you're up there and you're immersed in Mothman. You got the full moon the night before. You're up there in the town. You're looking at all this stuff. And then you look up and you'll see, like, I see a turkey vulture soaring Ugh. by itself. And yeah. I'd be like, what the heck? Oh, you know, at first you're like, is that a Mothman? Like, what is that? <laughs> I'm not kidding. Yeah, I know. I believe it. You know, you're like, what the, you know. Yeah, and um, so when you look up at a turkey vulture, they have a pretty good profile. And now you're trying to estimate, is this very high? Is it low? You know, to to differentiate between, you know, what would be a huge Mothman figure and or a turkey vulture with an eight-foot wingspan. Or exactly. And it's up there on the sky by itself, you know. Um, and you're like, what the... And especially we were coming into town and you don't usually... Like, we have a lot of vultures down here in the south and they're not... You don't usually see them flapping. 
right? You know, they're just soaring around on the thermals. Mm -hmm. And we saw one and it was flapping, like really motoring to to get up to altitude or whatever. And that one, when we first saw that, we thought it was Mothman. (laughs) We were like, whoa, what the heck is that? Yeah, like working the wings. Yeah, because the wings, like, you know, are funky looking when they're flapping. Yeah, yeah, because they're so long, they're actually, like, moving. Yeah, and they're curving, you know, and... And they, and they flap pretty slowly. Yeah. Know, yeah. Relatively slowly, almost like they're animated. So yeah. So that was super cool, though. You know, folks, I'm not, I didn't get anything from the museum to plug it, but I would really say if you're up there in and around West Virginia, Southern Ohio, go check out the museum. Go check out the little town. You won't be disappointed. Um, it was super cool. Check out the bridge site. It's about... 200 yards down from the museum don't miss don't miss the side of the bridge and the memorial to the to the folks that died in the bridge collapse and then if you do go up there into west virginia so we had gone up i hadn't been up there in years i had never been to point pleasant and then someone told us about uh the new river gorge bridge so no relation to uh mothman but super cool to see. It's a national park called New River Gorge. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's an arch bridge, and it's the longest steel arch bridge in the world, or it was until 2003 when they built one in China, in Shanghai, called the Lupu Bridge. Um, but it is, um, you know, the longest single span steel arch bridge in the United States. And uh, very high bridge as well, almost 900 feet over the river. Wow. Yeah. Wow, that is high. Yeah. So you can stop there and see the bridge. And, of course, we were up there. All of the leaves were turning. It's quite beautiful. And you'll see pictures of this bridge. I'll put one, a couple up on the website as well. It is beautiful and really uh, a piece of art. Uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then I went after seeing it and researched the photos of them building it. I mean, you know, I have an engineering background. I still don't know how they build these things. Like you look at it and you're like, how the heck did they even start? Yeah. You know. It's incredible. And kudos to these guys that can get up there and do the work. I don't even, I can't even, it's making my stomach a little weird. <laughs> Just thinking about this going over this 900-foot bridge. Yeah, check out the pictures and stuff. And then, you know, it's uh, I think they call it Beautiful and Wild West Virginia, right, is their slogan, something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was also reading about it. We just missed it. But I think it's on the third weekend in October, I believe, they have Bridge Day. And they close the bridge to um, cars. And you can go walking around on the bridge, and people base jump off of the bridge as well. So they walk out there with their parachute on the back and jump off. Oh, man. I I don't know, man. Not for me, Kev. All right. Well, I won't get you the gift certificate certificate either, Mm because you can also, anytime, you can pay to walk across the bridge underneath the roadway Uh on the maintenance uh, walkway. Ugh. So, but it's two feet wide and it's clear on the bottom, but there is a railing you can hold on to. <laughs> Great. I don't know. Me and Heights don't get along. <laughs> you sure you don't want the gift certificate for Christmas? Yeah, yeah. Well, you yeah. could give it to me. I'd just pass it on to somebody else I don't like. <laughs> 
I know we haven't talked in a while, but I just wanted you to have this. Make sure you hold on tight. <laughs> Bye now. <laughs> All right, Bill. So, uh, you know, I'm, I, uh, folks, I, I hope that's interesting to you to hear about Point Pleasant. I know we have covered Mothman extensively, both this encounter on the podcast and some of them up in Chicago as well. So it wasn't my intent to repeat that today, but I did want to tell you a little bit about Point Pleasant and uh, Clendenin and my experience up there in the last couple of weeks. Well, incredible, Kevin. Good stuff. You know, I want to mention something, too. Uh, this has nothing to do with Mothman, but I, I want to bring it out there before I forget. You know, when people talk about uh, Bigfoot and evidence and why there aren't more sightings and this and that. I really am tired of all of that diatribe because uh, from what I hear, there's plenty of sightings and evidential finds. And I want to give kudos again to a friend of the podcast and a personal friend of mine, Dave in Oregon. Dave, I know you're out there. I love you, bro. Uh, Dave has been a logger, a uh, big logging operation, as most of them are, trucks, men, chainsaws, you know, all kinds of activity. These fellas are regularly, and when I say regularly, I'm not talking about daily, but it's not necessarily an oddity for them to run across track lines and footprints in different locations. And Dave was just sharing with me the other day about one of the latest uh, track sightings they've had. I think there was a couple of them. And uh, Dave, if I mess this up, forgive me. I think he told called this fellow a lineman. And this guy's job is to go down the hillside and uh, anchor the overhead cable for the uh, carriage that then grabs the logs and brings them up to the uh, landing, I think they call it. And when they finish in a segment, he's got to go back down to the bottom and refix this line. So they're moving over like in straight lines, so the cable runs pretty much above their work area. And uh, after the, this last uh, finding of these tracks, uh, this guy is legitimately freaked out. Like, he's got to go down there in the dark. They're starting up like 4 a.m. in the morning or something. He's got to go down in the dark on a hill. This is not a parking lot. Uh, there's debris. You know, he's alone. Uh, I, I don't think he's armed. And after seeing the prince, the guy is legitimately freaked out about having to walk down in the darkness of night in this area where they have seen all of these footprints. And so these folks, folks, these guys are seeing and experiencing what we're dreaming about and talking about and maybe doubting uh, on a regular basis. There are things going on there that are ongoing while we're sitting in our home drinking a cup of joe and reading the paper and uh, going down to the gym. Uh, these guys are out in the woods working, and they are running across evidence of Bigfoot. And, Kev, I just wanted to bring that out because, you know, I, I think we lose track of the reality 
of what is going on there and the people who are putting themselves or, or, or due to their work or lifestyle are in the position to really engage with these kind of things in a way that we maybe never will. Yeah, I mean, most of us listening to this podcast are not uh, folks that are living for months at a time out in the wild, yeah. you know, um, like these like these lumber folks do. You know, it reminds me, Bill, of uh, what was going on this season on Expedition Bigfoot up at that lumber camp in Alaska. Fantastic. Fantastic. Right, where they were all working there and so much weird stuff happened that they actually left. You know, and look the at the woods. Want to be there. Remember the story of Portlock, Kev? Oh yeah. I mean, uh, you could plug Portlock's community into that place. Yeah. And just understand what they were living in and what they were up against. It's the same situation. Yep. And uh, that place. Now, look. I know there's people out there that think they're being overly dramatic, that all of this stuff is staged. They put all of these things in place to film and dramatize this. Uh, I am not in that camp, and I said it before. I think probably about half of it is some type of dramatization, Uh, not necessarily planting things or whatnot. And then I believe the other half is legitimate investigation. And... uh, I believe they really came across some really interesting stuff, again, as they are apt to do. Yep. So kudos to that whole crew at Expedition Bigfoot. Uh, really fantastic, man. All I, right, something. Bill, what kind of encounter do you have for us today? Well, I got something really neat here. Uh, very unusual. And uh, this strange encounter was brought to my attention by a fellow named Aaron Glenn, a then resident of the state of Pennsylvania. Uh, This is what Aaron encountered in 1973. In 73, I was living with my new bride, Tessa, in western Pennsylvania. At that time, there was a longstanding debate going on within the state between those who do and those who don't. Allow me to explain. At that time, we had a fairly robust black bear population in the state, with the dues being those who were in favor of more black bears, such as hunters and tourists, and the don'ts being farmers and beekeepers, such as myself, along with a whole host of other agricultural-related business owners. Black bears (coughs) can be extremely destructive creatures, As you can imagine, bears have an insatiable hankering for honey. Perhaps you may recall the story of Winnie Winnie the Pooh and his liking for honey. The author apparently having a certain knowledge pertaining to the habits of bears prior to writing the book. Beekeeping at the time was not all that I did, but it had grown from a hobby into producing about 20% of my income at the time. And I wasn't too keen on having anyone or anything louse that up. I had been living in this particular house for three years alone, with my wife having been with me for the last two years. That led up to the event of which I am about to tell you. Although I just told you that bears are a problem for this honey industry, I hadn't personally had a problem with them. 
but I knew others within the state who had through our organizational newsletters. It was well known in our town that an occasional bear was shot and buried in a ditch to protect one's hives from destruction. In our neck of the woods, it was not uncommon to hear a gunshot ring out at any time of the year, and nobody was particularly running to find out where it had come from. So it was in 73 that I went out to the hives early one morning to begin a clean-out. I had suited myself up and got my smoke pot going. I had eight large hives located in three different areas of the field behind my house. My new bride was already getting her feet wet, helping me with the bees. Behind my house was what my wife called the dollhouse, which was a shed that I built to look like our own home. It was the same color, had the same green roof shingles. It had a couple of double-hung windows as well. And in reality, it was the shop I used to extract honey from the combs, and I had taken the time to make it look like something other than a shed. Having taken the combs that day from the first two sets, my wife was already hard at work in the dollhouse, so I went out into the far end of the field to tend to the rest of the hives. As I was approaching the last set out in the field, I could see that there were bees flying everywhere and that the tops had been removed from the hives. As I got nearer, most of the combs were scattered around on the ground. Upon closer inspection, they and the hives themselves had been badly damaged. Of course, my initial thoughts were that now I was the one with the bear problem and I was going to have to do something about it. I spent the rest of the morning repairing the hives, after which I focused my energy on the solution. For whatever reason, my thoughts were that the bear would come back to the hives, having been repaired. So I lashed a ladder to the side of a large maple tree near the hives and nailed some 2x12s in the crotch of the tree as a place to sit and wait for the culprit to return. That night, I took my double-barrel 12-gauge loaded with buckshot, and I sat in the tree the entire night with nothing coming of it. After talking it over with my wife, I decided to wait a few days and have a go at it again. Four days later, I once again climbed up into the tree to lay in wait for the honey snatcher's return. I had climbed up into the tree at 10 p.m., bringing with me my shotgun and a large flashlight with four D-cells that I had taped to the underside of the gun's barrels. It wasn't like you had to aim this gun, because at close range it would be more or less a point-and-shoot scenario. It was highly doubtful that I could or would miss anything at the distance I was sitting away from these hives. I remember it was at 2 a.m. on the button that I heard some crunching on the edge of the woods and I began seeing the silhouette of something large and black coming into the field. Although I could see no details whatsoever because the flashlight was still off, it looked like the biggest bear in the state of Pennsylvania was now walking over to my hives. I waited until it was on top of them and removing the lid from one of the hives and that's when I threw the switch on the flashlight illuminating it, and I pulled the trigger before it or I had a chance to even think. It was a split second after the shot had hit it that I realized it was not a bear, but a giant gorilla. 
It reeled backwards from the impact and fell to the ground. I had the light right on it, and it stood to its feet yet again. So frightened was I by the sight of this creature that without hesitation I squeezed off the second barrel, hitting it squarely a second time. Again, the monster fell to the ground, and I broke the barrel frantically to load two more shells. With my adrenaline pumping and and in my haste to reload quickly, the heavy flashlight broke free from the tape as I snapped the barrels open. It fell to the ground below the tree, and the light went out. I was now sitting in the tree alone in the dark with a gigantic wounded creature 20 yards away from me in the field. It took my eyes a little while to refocus without the aid of the light, and when they did, I couldn't see the gorilla anymore. It was gone. Now, there was no way I was climbing down out of the tree with no light and that thing walking around wounded. So I decided to stay in the tree. About 30 minutes later, I saw a light coming across the field from my house and I knew it was my wife. Of course, she had heard the shots and was expecting me to return, which I hadn't. I screamed at the top of my lungs, go back in the house and lock the doors. I saw the light turn around. I knew that she had heard me and was running back towards the house. What I didn't know was that she had called the police. About 15 minutes later, I could see flashing lights down by the house, and within moments, there were several men shouting and coming into the field with flashlights. I shouted to them, I'm over here in the large maple. Be careful. There's a large wounded animal around here somewhere. With that, their pace slowed and the lights were now moving everywhere in the field. By the time they got close to me, I was already coming down the ladder and beginning to tell them what happened. We all looked at the hive. There was quite a bit of blood on the ground where the gorilla had twice fallen. We all walked back to the house where my wife was waiting and we sat down in the kitchen where I had a lot of explaining to do. When I got around to telling everyone about the gorilla, you could just imagine the looks that I was getting. One of the officers said, you know, it's against the law to hunt bears out of season, regardless of what they're doing to your hives. I tried to lighten things up by saying, well, what about shooting a gorilla? But they weren't smiling. In the morning, they had returned to scour the woods in the hopes of finding what they believed would be a bear, but nothing was found. They told me that if it was found in violation in the future, if I was found in violation in the future, they would find me and confiscate my gun, and they left. After they were gone, my wife said to me, Honey, did you really shoot a gorilla? I told her what I had seen was indiscernible in known human terms. It was definitely not a man, but it was way too big to be a gorilla. And yet, at the time, the description favored that of being a gorilla rather than that of being a man. When I raised the barrels of my shotgun and flipped the switch on the flashlight, there was approximately a three-second delay before I squeezed the trigger. This was enough time for my mind to determine human or non-human, and then I fired the shot. When the light hit it, the eyes were glowing bright yellow and this beast opened its mouth, exposing large white teeth. The top of its head was almost level with the boards I was sitting on, the height being close to 10 feet. 
It had to be all of five or six feet wide at the shoulders, and its musculature was beyond description. When I hit it with the first round, and that followed by the second, it didn't make so much as a sound. There was no scream or growl or anything. It was knocked down and got up and was knocked down again, and then it disappeared as I was reloading. I now know that what I shot, I believe, was a Bigfoot. However, at the time, I had not personally heard of any of the then-reported sightings and evidence that had been seen in the Pacific Northwest in regards to the Patterson-Gimlin film or the large footprints which were found on that job site. None of this was known to me at the time. After the creature was shot that night, there was no further damage done to the hives going forward. I never saw any further evidence of the Bigfoot's presence on our property. And my wife and I continued to live at that home for another 15 years after the events of that night. There you have it, Kev. Whoa. Pretty bizarre, huh? Very bizarre. But uh, again, what doesn't shock me is a creature... Any creature who has a hankering for the sweet stuff uh, coming by this storefront, basically, where the stuff is laid out and in the open uh, to grab a handful and lick their fingers, you know? Sure. I mean, jeez, uh, you know, even a dog sniffs around on the ground at packages or where another dog has been and whatnot. I mean, they're just just in nature to sniff around and find no, stuff. And, and, of course, we would suppose that uh, a Bigfoot would have a keen sense of smell, although they are known for being kind of stinky. <laughs> so what are you saying? They can't smell their own stank? Uh, maybe they don't smell their own stank, but they're very good at smelling <laughs> other stank. <laughs> yeah, well, if they can smell them, well, look, maybe they smell themselves and they say, damn, I'm good. <laughs> Need some more of that. <laughs> Man, this aftershave is powerful. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> yeah, so there you have it, the beekeeper. That is cool. But uh, interesting. See, again, you brought into a little weird world here. Who the heck is ever thinking about beekeepers and communities of beekeepers, you know, newsletters and kicking around the business end of making honey and the problems they're having, you know, or successes, you know? Yeah. yeah. But uh, it, it's just interesting. You know, it's a little enclave. I'm sure they're all over the United States, and I'm just unaware of them because I'm oh, not yeah. involved. I got a friend that does a little beekeeping. Oh, there you go. And the honey is fantastic. You know, once yeah. in a while he gives me a jar of honey from his bees, and it's like unlike honey, any other honey you ever had. Well, I don't mind him giving you money, as long, honey, as long as he's not calling you honey. You know what I'm saying? No, no, no. <laughs> Just darling. Some... <laughs> Sometimes darling. <laughs> we have Here's that honey, honey darling. <laughs> but that we is a great account. We have local honey though. available I... here on Long Island. So there are people here on the island that are doing some beekeeping, too. I just don't know any of them, you know? Yeah. But I guess all you got to do is be willing to set up a couple of hives on your yard 
and then uh, know what you're doing, of course, with the bees and uh, handling them and extracting the honey, and you're a beekeeper. Yeah, I think it's pretty easy to get started on a small scale, mm -hmm. um, but it's pretty hard, you know, to, to get up on a large scale where you're trying to make some money at it. Just like, you know, it's pretty easy to plant some tomatoes, but it's hard to be a farmer, you know. Yeah, yeah, no doubt about it, you know. Yeah, but it is pretty cool, and it's a good thing, too. You know, the bees, a lot of the bees uh, aren't doing that well, you know, for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, beekeeping helps the bees out a lot, as well as, you know, getting some delicious honey. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, I got no shortage of bees around my property. Yeah. You know, in season, I got bees, hornets, wasps. They all well, that's you got a lot of flowers, too, right? A lot of flowering, uh, you know, trees and bushes and flowers themselves. Yeah, I'm um, doing stuff to attract, you know, butterflies and bees, and they don't bother me. No, no, they're great. You know, they, they, they don't bother you. Like, my friend Danny was here doing some work. Uh, a while ago, and I had these big hornets, man. These suckers were about an inch and a half long, maybe a little, maybe two inches. And big yellow and brown hornets, and they'd be zipping around in the morning in this one area, and he was doing some pruning for me. And he said, Bill, we got a problem. These bees are all... I said, Danny, they won't bother you. Uh, <laughs> they were around me all the time, and I walked right over where they were flying around and started pruning one of the bushes. And once he uh, once he realized that he was okay, because he's yeah. thinking they'll kill you, you know. They could be murder hornets. Murder hornets. Did they look like they had a shoulder holster with a forty four magnum? <laughs> and a mean grimace. Those murder hornets are mean. <laughs> well, them murder hornets about to meet Murder Billy. <laughs> Get back, Jack. I'm going to give you a piece of this. <laughs> so, Kev, what do we have in a listener mail today? Yeah, yeah, we got a, a couple of good emails come in. One from Nick in New Zealand. He Nick says, G'day, mates. Nope, not an Aussie, but a Kiwi. <laughs> not the fruit, just the national bird of New Zealand. The good old <laughs> Kiwi bird. Uh-huh. And he said, had to have a laugh about you guys chatting about the glowing red eyes that Kev's looking for for his uh, Bigfoot sculpture for the backyard. <laughs> he said, found this on Amazon, and he gave us a link <coughs> to uh, some pretty cool battery-powered glowing red eyes. Uh, I'm going to check them out on Amazon. Uh-huh. And uh, he also mentions that he says, I've been here listening to your podcast since I heard a nervous bill on Sasquatch Chronicles with Wes way back when. <laughs> and he says, I love your content. Keep up the amazing work you both produce for us all. Sweet as Nick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I read that thing from Nick. I don't know where you got that nervous from. I'm never nervous. <laughs> But maybe he thought I sounded nervous. Maybe you were up on a bridge when you were doing that recording. Yeah, 900 feet, I'd be nervous. I shouldn't say I'm nervous. <laughs> At 900 feet walking across a gangplank, I'm nervous. That's, I thought you said you were never nervous. Yeah, I, I have to correct myself. <laughs> <laughs> I have to correct myself in that, you know. All right. Ay, ay, ay. All right, so our next email comes in from Neil. 
excuse me. He says, I've just finished reading the account in volume four from Northern Missouri. As I visualize myself in the situation that those hunters found themselves in, I'm left to wonder why some adult male uh, Bigfoot exhibit aggression towards humans while some do not. In the Missouri case, it wasn't due to hunger as this gentleman lived to tell the story. Maybe it had a toothache, something else. Whatever the reason, these accounts and your podcast have helped me a great deal as a student of this phenomenon. While on vacation last week, I was lounging on the North Carolina coast while enjoying volume three. On the way home, my wife took a turn driving, so I finished that volume and ordered four through seven. Hmm. Yeah. Good job. And he says, I have an account of my own to share when you get some time. Very best regards, Neil. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, well, you know, uh, it's like I always say, Neil, and I'll say it again. You never know the disposition of any animal, let alone a Bigfoot. Right. Uh, when you come upon them. What if they're 300 feet away and they just decide that that's too close and yep. they start coming for you? Or 30 feet away and they just see you and turn and walk away. You have no, no way of knowing or judging. This is something you know nothing about. You don't know attitudes. You don't know what kind of brain they have, uh, what kind of protective measures they instinctively will take or not take. Having seen you, you don't know anything. So your best, like my friend Joey said, if you don't want to get framed, stay out of the picture. <laughs> and that is some good advice, man, you know. Hmm. Just don't go there and you'll never have to question the decision you've made. <clears throat> Crazy, huh, Kim? Good stuff. All right. And our yeah. last email, this one's pretty cool, from Troy from Florida. He says, I've been listening to your podcast for a while now, and I really enjoy them. Desi, my fellow researcher, and I had uh, a night or early morning encounter where we had whistles that moved and paralleled, paralleled us. Plus, we found tracks of over 18 different creatures. Wow. We believe we interrupted a family of Bigfoot as they were traveling through the Green Swamp located north of Lakeland, Florida. The adults were located in the woodline to the north of the dirt road we were on. Our first indication was a whistle, which Desi had heard, and I, being a longtime hunter, simply blew off. The second time we heard the whistle, it grabbed my attention as Desi thought it might be a human in the woods. Hmm. We paused on the dirt road and listened again, and another single whistle came from the wood line just to the north of us. It was now evident we were being paralleled by a Bigfoot. Huh. We stopped and took out the night vision monocular. Up until then, we were using our green headlamps. As I panned the wood line with the night vision, there was a, a whistle followed by a crack as if something had stepped on a branch and broke it. I continued searching the wood line with the night vision when Desi says, Troy, what's this? As I turned and looked on the dirt road, there was a footprint in the sand illuminated by Desi's green headlamp. Hmm. We were both stunned. 
The whistles continued, and they can be heard moving off to the west. After we made measurements and took photos, we formed a theory that the adult Bigfoots were in the wood line, and a juvenile Bigfoot was on the dirt road. The whistles were to warn the juvenile of our presence. We came to this conclusion based on the whistles, the movement of the whistles, and the juvenile Bigfoot prints changed direction, originally heading east, then they turned and headed back west on the road in the same direction the whistles were moving. Huh. The time was approximately 4 a.m. on April 29th in 2021. Wow. So that's a great account. He goes on to say, it was also very interesting to hear you had a report of a sighting in Herky Huffman Bull Creek, Florida. Yeah. That's the area I hunted in for over 18 years, and I still hunt today. I had some unusual experiences there as well. It is the reason I started researching Bigfoot. Yeah. Thanks again for your podcast. Interesting. Awesome, Troy. Yeah. And that Herky Hoffman, uh, I'm not sure if that's the correct pronunciation, but whatever. It looks like Herky Hoffman, Bull Creek. Yeah, Yeah. Bull Creek. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting, you know, and that is also the place where that I think that fellow went back uh, by the creek, and uh, he found a, if I'm not mistaken, I think he found a hog and a pit bull, mm-hmm. both dead by the creek, uh, with no evidence of having been shot or damaged in any way, mm-hmm. which uh, I think he said would be, I think he said that they wouldn't, now they got a big snake problem over there, and I don't know where it is now, or how the snakes are, but I think he mentioned that if it had been like a, a anaconda or a boa constrictor, they would have consumed it. Uh, and uh, if it was a gator or something, they just would have had at that thing. There was no way that two animals, a dog and a, a pig, were going to be left laying there untouched. Yeah. I thought that was kind of odd. Strange stuff, man. Yeah, you left just shaking your head like, what the heck? No doubt about it. Yeah. Well, great podcast, Bill. Thanks, folks, for tuning in and uh, keep those five star reviews coming. Check out the website, BigfootTerrierInTheWoods.com, under um, episode 221. When you double click on the episode, scroll down a bit, you will see some cool pictures that I put up from Point Pleasant. Yeah. And, folks, go out there and buy some books. Like I said, volume 10 is now out an audio book. Go out, show some support for uh, what we're doing here. And by the way, if you should find yourselves walking through the woods of West Virginia, checking out the gorge over the bridge, or perhaps in Western Pennsylvania, doing a little deer hunting or hiking, you best remember one thing, my friends. Always carry more gun than you think you're going to need. Sleep tight.